Privilege, thank you. Yeah, so starting with the third one, I mean, when Jesus says you're blessed, that is the highest level of blessing. I mean, there's nothing that we could ever achieve in this world that is higher than what Jesus said. And Jesus, Jesus said to the disciples, you are blessed. Because of what? Because you got to see me, the living word. And you got to hear from me, the living word of God. And that is what he gave to them. But what about the people in the middle of the peril? Let's go on. Now, I want to just, there's a parallel passage in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' final prayer. Not in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the prayer that he prays to the Father. And here's what he says. He says, I have revealed, he's talking to the Father. He says, I have revealed you, the Father, to those whom you, you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me. They accepted them. So Jesus says, everything that Jesus had is from God. And what he received from God, the word of life, he gave to his disciples. They know with certainty that I came to, from you and that they believe that you sent me. This is at the heart of the gospel, the good news. That the king of the kingdom of God is here because of Jesus. He is the king. And the message that Jesus proclaimed opened the door and invited people to come into the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes on, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Put your name in there. You know, Han, Vivian, Chris, you name it. All of us are included in Jesus' prayer because we were those who believed in me through whose message? None of us heard from Jesus directly. It was through the message, and none of us heard even from Peter and, and, the, and the original disciples. We heard it from those people who heard it from them, who, who passed it on to someone else, to someone else for 2,000 years, and here we are. Every one of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ does so because somebody delivered the word that was originally delivered to Jesus, that Jesus delivered to the disciples. And some of us here have the joy of thinking, seeing other people around us who've come to embrace Jesus Christ and found their place in the kingdom of God because someone shared and gave to them what they received. So Jesus says, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Meaning, beyond this time on earth, Jesus still will continue to make his word known to the world that needs it. But he does it every single time through the same but seemingly an ordinary process of the word reaching somebody and someone believing in it, embracing it, and passing it on to another person. That has gone on for 2,000 years. With that in mind, we've got to look at the parable of the talents, which Beth talked about. You know, it's interesting. When I looked it up again in the latest version of the NIV, they changed it, I think, rightly from the parable of the talents to the parable of the bags of gold. It doesn't sound as nice, but it's actually very clarifying because when we hear the word talent, we think of, like, talents, individual talents. No, no. Talent was actually a, a unit of measurement. <laughs> they, they couldn't think of a unit of measurement. They just called it bags of gold. Now, how much was a talent? Many of you, some of you know this. It's about 80 pounds. Could you imagine what 80 pounds of gold is worth? That's a lot of gold. Some, some people calculate it to be about 20 years of wages. So every one of you, let's do a quick math. You guys know how much you get paid every year, right? Multiply by 20. How much is that going to be? 
for many of us, it's going to be way over a million dollars, maybe tens of million dollars. Right? Even if you make minimum wage, it's $300,000. No, is it? 15 times 23,000? No, no, no. Yeah, $600,000. It's a lot of money. So Jesus tells this parable at the end of his life. It's the last thing, I'm sorry, second to the last thing he teaches his disciples in the book of Matthew. And he says, and he says, again, the kingdom of God is like a man going on a journey. And we know who this is. This is Jesus, who called these servants. Who are they? He's the disciples, the people who served him. And he entrusted his wealth, literally possessions, to them. Let me ask you, what do you think was Jesus in his mind when he said the king left them possessions? Did Jesus have any bags of gold? Did he have any possessions except the clothes that he wore on his back? Did he have title, privilege? No, he only had one thing, which is what God gave him, which is the word of God, testimony about the kingdom of God. That's all Jesus had, and he gave it all by teaching and showing it to, the, to, to his disciples. So, when he's, so let's be clear. When he says parable of the bags of gold, Jesus uses, I believe, that word, bags of gold or talent, not to talk about different kinds of resources we have available. But I believe 100% Jesus was thinking about his testimony about the kingdom of God because that's what he had entrusted to the disciples. In fact, a few chapters on the road in the book of Acts, we see Peter. When he goes to the temple, he sees a beggar. He says, silver and gold, I have none. I don't have any talents of bag, bags of gold, but I give you what I have. Because he got it from Jesus. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. That's all he had. So we see in the parable that Jesus is primarily talking about, my contention is, his message. And he goes away and then he entrusts to the, to, to the three servants. The man who had received five bags of gold. Again, bags of gold because it was so precious. That's what Jesus is trying to uh, portray to them. And what does he do? He went at once. He went somewhere. He took it with him. And he put his money to work. Remember that. He put it to work. And he gained. So we know, well, how do you take the word of God and how do you gain out of that? It's easy. It's just the process I described to you. You share it with someone. And someone believes it, embraces it, shares with somebody else. Oh, there's another, another gold coin. Right? That process goes on. Now, the master returns, and this is the point. To the two who had went out, worked it, gained. Jesus says, come and share your master's happiness. Incredibly generous. He says, share everything I have. Come. But we know the third one, and this is the punch of this parable. And guys, I'm not here to try to guilt trip anybody. Let me be honest. But I want to make sure that we hear it loud and clearly from the Lord and from the scripture itself. The man who received one bag of gold came and says, Master said, I know you're a hard man. I I know. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not known. You know, this is Jesus, as you guys know, his favorite analogy about the spreading of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom of God was harvesting and seeds. So this guy knew. He says, so I was afraid. And he said, went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. He used the word lazy here. Why? Because he did nothing with what was entrusted to him. 
So he says, well, he says, um, and here's the, the, the final punch. He says, so take the gold, bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. And here he repeats himself from Matthew 13. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is how it works. Jesus entrusted, he revealed himself, entrusted his word to his servants. Those, who are these disciples? They're the ones who followed him. They were those who took his word, put it to, went out and put it to work, and saw it spread. But the third one, knowing the master, calling him his master, takes the word. He knew it, no doubt, but he chose to bury it in the ground, far away from him, where he just sat there, useless. As I've said, every person who's ever been impacted by the word of God has always been done so because somebody, someone, carried the message and spoke the word of God to them. This guy didn't bother, even though he had the most precious thing in the world right by him. And then the scary part. Here's what Jesus says. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Jesus' favorite description of hell. Outside of his presence. Full of regrets. Oh, I was so close. He actually had the word of God. But he never really had it because it never really entered into his heart and it never came out of his life. He had it, but he never really did. You see, this is Jesus' sternest warning to us. For those of us especially who have been influenced by the great spread of the gospel, who grew up in the church, who have heard all kinds of messages, and we've, we have... Some, as like the Bibles that sit on our desk that we never open. We've been so exposed to the Word of God. But has it really got into our hearts and worked in us and worked out of us? Or is it still sitting buried in my bookcase, symbolically of my life, and just sits there? Now, why is this? Why do I want to talk about this? Because... Here's my proposition, and you'll know why, why, how this connects to my message. What we do with what the Lord has given to us in his word is our most important stewardship. All of you guys know what stewardship means now. That we've been entrusted with something from the Lord that is not ours. And God will hold us accountable one day for what we've done with his word. You know, there's all kinds of stewardship. I agree well, all the T's, right? Temple, treasure, talent, testimony. Forget the last one. But may we never forget that the primary stewardship we have individually and as a church is the Word of God. That if we fail this, it'll be to our utter gnashing and weeping of our teeth. Now, I know I preach this in Zoom, and some of the people are like, okay, I'm not here 
to trying to guilt you or anything like that. Let me be honest. But I want you to hear it honestly. And I'm not really that negative, to be honest. For those of you that may think, you know what, yeah, I've been exposed to the Word of God, but I don't know if it's ever really, I don't know if I buried it or if it's just in my heart someplace. I just never used it. Here's the point, guys and ladies. Engage with the Word of God. You know, I bring this Bible. It's called the Daily Walk. Our, our house church started using it. And it's been really fun engaging with it. If you ever have any questions, please talk to any of our house church people or, or myself. But one of the readings, we've been reading through the, uh, the, the Bible. I love the story of the manna. And, and this one has, not, like, unlike a lot of the Bibles, it actually has a little one page for every day to read. And, and then the author has made a great point. He says, he talked about the manna. Remember the manna that God gave to the Israelites? Do you realize that God could give them a complete breakfast for, bre- for breakfast? In the desert? He doesn't do that. He gives them manna. What? The raw ingredients of breakfast. So what does that require? It requires every Israelite who heard about the manna to believe it by faith, to do a foolish thing, get up early in the morning and go out to the desert and gather this unknown substance and bring it home and try to cook it, not having any idea what it is. But when they started doing this a day after day after day for 40 years, they, they realized what a treasure and what a sustenance it is. So for those of you who are thinking, I don't know where I am, here it is. First thing is, Start engaging with the Word of God actively. Dig into it. Put some faith into it. Put some grease into it. Right? And for those of you who are doing it and love it, you love the Word of God, it's the sweetest thing in the world, let it work out of your life into the people around you. Don't be shy about what people may say about you. Just go out and do it. Because you'll find out that when you do, God will meet you. And you'll have the greatest joy of seeing the Word of God deposited in you, being multiplied, okay? Now, I know this is a sermon, but I got to go. 15 more minutes, I promise. Here's why it, this is where it connects. And I realize I'm not going to do justice, so I'm just going to say this. If you ever, after this message, have questions, want to talk with me on a personal level, I'm all for it, and I'll even buy you coffee. So just, just reach out, Okay? I love this passage because it answers three things that have been burning in me ever since I was a new believer. First, as a young believer, my number one question is, what do I do with my life? I mean, prior to coming to Christ when I was 21, I just lived the life the way I wanted to. And that led to literally a dark alley in Austin dying of suicide attempt. And when I, by God's grace, survived the suicide attempt, what I realized was, oh my goodness, I messed up my life. I'm not going to listen to Han anymore. And so when I started finally engaging with the Bible and began to put my trust in God, I realized, you know what? God knows everything. So maybe I should engage him in figuring out what I should do with my life. So that was my preoccupation for a while. What do I do with my life? That was pretty much my 20s. Later on in my 30s and 40s, as I began to do things and get involved in life, have family and all of that, I realized that there's a lot of suffering in the world, especially among believers who love the Lord. Didn't make sense to me. Why doesn't an all-powerful God prevent suffering and evil? I've seen people getting killed because of their faith in Christ. How does that happen? And so I went through a lot, and the Bible really begins to give me answers. Over the last 10 years, I'd say, probably the number one burning question to me was this. How can an all-loving God send people to hell? 
I've kind of avoided it. I've never preached about it. I haven't really talked about it except for a few times with a few people that I really trust because I don't want to be a, a heretic, right? It really bothered me when I see good people and people who never really had much of a chance continuing to reject the gospel. Well, God really sent them to hell. I want you to hold on to these things. Maybe some of you had, I'm just curious, how many of you like, thought about these questions? Am I the only one? Raise your hand if, right. Okay. Keep your hand up. Raise your hand if you thought about the first question. Okay. Raise your hand if you thought about the second question. Okay. Raise your hand if you thought about the third question. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, we got, thank you guys. So walk with me here. I'm going to read from First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, and when he, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our, Lord, our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. First thing I want to say, and this is a little bit of repetition from my last sermon. The Bible teaches us, this passage is in particular, but all over the Bible, the Bible teaches us how we should suffer what God ordains in our lives. It's clear. God is sovereign over all of our sufferings. God ordains sufferings in our lives. And Bible's position is, it teaches us how we should suffer. Much more so than how we should escape, alleviate, or avoid suffering that is in the world. This may seem innocuous, but it's really controversial. Because we all think instinctively our job as Christians is to help people alleviate and avoid suffering. Because none of us like suffering. But when we look at Scripture, it's amazing. There's hardly any prayer of people who are in the midst of persecution where, where Paul would say he prays that they would, the persecution would stop. You know, I actually saw this about 25 years ago. I was in Washington, D.C. The first, uh, uh, first week of November, Sunday of November, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Christians. I was at the Washington Cathedral. And they had a special uh, event, and uh, they brought in some of, uh, one of the leaders of the Chinese underground church. This was like in 19, like uh, 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 late 90s, when there was still a lot of persecution for the Chinese Christians. And at the end of the message, the, the, it was actually a U.S. Uh, government official turned to the Chinese elder and said, you know, how can we pray for you and for the church, persecuted church? And I'll never forget, 
The elderly Chinese leader said, do not pray for us that the persecution will stop. Pray that we'll be faithful in the midst of these persecutions. You want to know how China went from almost no Christians 40, 50 years ago to 10% or more? This is how. They didn't try to escape the alleviator of what? Of course, when we can. Out of compassion, we should help people who are suffering. But when it is God-ordained suffering, people realize the best thing we can do is to learn how we should suffer. So Paul does this in this short little letter. I'll go quickly. What does he do? In this short address, he does three things. First of all, he's, he focuses not on what or who is causing the suffering. The whole context of the letter is suffering, but we never found out exactly who or what. Because suffering is something that when you suffer, the first thing you want to do is figure out what is causing and who is causing and who is to blame. Because you want to fix it. But when it's God-ordained suffering, guess what he says? He says, look, first thing you've got to focus on is to focus on who is carrying us through the suffering. So that's why we have this repetition, which is kind of odd, but it is, it's full of significance. He says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Get it? Why does he repeat it twice like this? Because he's reminding them. They're in the hands of God who's their father, beloved father. That it is their Lord Jesus Christ, their good shepherd, who's leading and guiding them right in and through the persecution that they're receiving. And Paul is trying to focus them away from who or what is causing the suffering to what, what is happening, what God is doing. And who is caring for them? It's not just God in heaven you know, spiritually speaking, God always works through his church. That's why he mentions Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He's reminding them, we're here, we're away from you, but we're praying for you. And when we're with you, we encourage them with the word of God. And when we left you, we did not leave you as orphans. We left you the church. You guys are standing together. And he goes on. And in the next section, he focuses on not on what evil is being done to them. Never mentions it. But instead, he focused on what good is being done in them. He says, we are always to give thanks to you who are going through suffering. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. And it actually uses a very unusual word. Literally, it's hooper or hyper. They're experiencing not just normal faith growth or static. They're experiencing hyper growth. Wouldn't you want to have that kind of hyper growing faith in you? The secret ingredient of the sauce is the soil of suffering. And, he's, and then he goes on and says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's so true. Christian faith, true Christian faith, is not about just accumulation of knowledge. If it's not always followed by and coupled with increasing love, it is not true faith. How do you know your faith is growing? It's good when your love grows to the people around you. They always go hand in hand. And then he says, therefore, we boast about you. We don't feel sorry for you. We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. So these are the three things that come out of suffering. When we handle it right, focusing on God the Father and relying on the church around us, we grow in our faith, we increase in love, and steadfastness and endurance continues. Spiritual growth that God intends for us comes about when we suffer in Christ. 
you know, when you suffer outside of Christ, it's pretty bad. It's meaningless. It's painful. But you may go through the same suffering, and I've seen this many times. When you're all of a sudden in Christ, it takes on an entirely different significance. Because you're not just suffering for nothing. You're suffering in Christ and for Christ. And of course, that requires faith in Christ. And here's a part that I've really been learning a lot. What it means that we suffer with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, this past six months, before I preached the first one, after I preached the first one, man, I was talking about suffering, but I didn't know about, I mean, there was another degree of ratcheting of suffering in my family. And it wasn't, it wasn't me, it was my wife. And I asked her permission to share this. Last minute, a week before school began, she got this dream opportunity to be a full-time teacher again after being out of teaching for about 20 years. She got excited. She accepted sixth grade special education in Plano. And oh boy, within the first week we realized, oh my goodness, what is she in? She told me later, she's been telling me, this has been the most difficult, agonizing trial of her life. As she faces a school system that is broken, even more so after COVID. Kids, sixth graders whose lives are already broken, everyone from broken families with, with learning disabilities. Principals, vice principals, teachers, people leaving left and right, utterly broken situation. I saw my poor wife do her everything that she can, working till 10, 11 o'clock at night, working on the weekends, working on the holidays, and feeling like that she cannot do it enough. In the midst of that, we started crying out to God again. At first, we were looking to people to blame. Well, after a while, we started praying and believing that, you know, God intended for good for my wife. And this is for her benefit and the benefit of the people around her. And our house church, every week, has been praying for her, walking beside her. And others in our church have been doing that with her. Spiritual growth comes through this. Okay, five minutes. The Bible motivates us to embrace suffering for the glory of God, the coming of his kingdom, and our privilege of participation. He goes on. What is the first motivation, right? He switches their thoughts now. He doesn't talk about them or the church. He talks about God. He says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And if you go back and look at the context of 1 Thessalonians, you see what kind of sufferings that they actually went through. He said, um, first of all, regarding the testimony, he says, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Sorry. So, um, what is he reminding them of is this. That first of all, their motivation in suffering is this. Actually, it's not about us. It's about God. Because that is the true joy of every, every true Christian. That God is glorified when we prove ourselves, when we show ourselves to be worthy of his kingdom. And how do we show ourselves to be worthy? We know that none of us are worthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's why we need Jesus and his sacrifice. But once we believe by faith and through the power of the Spirit in us, we begin to change we become people who prove ourselves to be worthy of the kingdom of God. And the way we do that is this. What Paul is saying is, first of all, they prize his kingdom more than this world. In spite of what the world says, they rather belong to Jesus and his kingdom. And they not only prize it, they participate in its expansion. That's how the message rang out. From the church that was despised 
because they turned away from their culture and they turned to this new strange fangled religion. And they were looked upon with suspicion and suffered persecution as, as a result. They didn't stop. They continued to let the message ring out from them in spite of severe suffering. And they were motivated not just that because it was true. They were motivated because they knew that this is to the glory of God. Moving up ahead, there's a second aspect of the glory of God. He says, this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, since indeed God considers it just, and I have to kind of chop up his things a little bit, to grant relief to your afflicted when the, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. What is he saying? That God is glorified when our unjust suffering in the world, when Christians are unjustly persecuted in the world, that actually will result in our participation in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among, at, uh, at among all who have believed. You see, God says, when he comes to finally judge the world, one of the probably the number one reason after the, the fact that, that we received I and mean, rejected and killed Jesus is that the messengers of Jesus, the world rejected and persecuted with no reason. What have Christians, seriously, what have Christians done that deserve so much persecution that we've received for 2,000 years? We heal the sick. We pray for the sick. We, we take care of the orphans. We love our neighbors, even our enemies. But the world has persecuted us. And that is God's indictment. And he will show himself to be the righteous judge by punishing the world for what they have done to the Christians for 2,000 years. But here's the other side. Um, yeah, there's a flip side of God's justice. One side is, 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 so, is, is to bring retribution and just, uh, justice to the ones who are suffering and relief to them. Other side is to repay with affliction those who afflicted us. So God is glorified when our unjust suffering in the world validates God's just judgment against it. Praise God when he comes as a righteous judge and punishes those evildoers. But this is where it gets really hard for me, at least. He will inflict vengeance, not only on those one who are inflicting the Thessalonians, he says, but he inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. Wait, God's going to give hell to those who don't know God? And to those who didn't obey the gospel? Isn't that free will? And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction? I mean, these are hard. I don't know about you. I had a, I've been having a hard time with this. And I won't do it too much longer, but there's a couple of things here that Paul really helps us to understand. Not only what he's thinking, but what God's word is saying. First of all, the, the word justice or just of you know, God, in English it's kind of conflated because we use like four different words for, for the same word essentially. So when he says this is the evidence of righteousness, it, there's actually a Greek word. And the key word is D-I-K-D-K, dikaios. This is the righteous judgment of God, since indeed God considers it just or righteous. Same word. Okay? And then when he says inflicting vengeance, is, when I think of vengeance, that's a negative thing. But again, in English, that one word goes overboard. In Greek, it's ekdikasis. Same word. He's giving justice, he says, to those who do not know God. Well, 
How does God give justice to the... What is the justice for those who don't know God or who don't refer, uh, obey the word of God? Right? And then the last verse says, they will suffer the punishment. Again, the, the Greek word is decay. They will suffer the justice of eternal justice. Wait a How is hell justice? And this is the second part is the key for me, at least. Away, it says, they will suffer the decay, justice of God, of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. This is the key here. What is he saying? First of all, what is hell? Hell is ultimately a place where there is no presence of God. I don't care how bad anyone's situation in the world is at any time in history. There's never been a time when God was absent from the world. His grace still preserves us. There's still a little bit of light, a little bit of buffer against evil in our world. Hell is when there is no God. And there's no grace, no light, anything. I cannot imagine how bad that is. Um, I like the way C.S. Lewis puts this here. He says this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God will say in the end, Thy will be done. What does he mean by this? The way I look at it is this. There's only really two kinds of people. Those in heaven are people who wanted to be in heaven. Who heard about the message of the gospel, the kingdom of God, and wanted to be there so bad, even against persecution. And then those people who live their life having no need of God, and even if they had an opportunity to learn about God or to think about the fact that there should be a God in this world, chose time and time again to reject it. And in the end, after all the trials, all the chances that God gives them, if they continue to reject an offer to be with God forever in the kingdom of heaven, God allows them what they want. That's the justice of God. Why does God do that? Because in the end, God treats every one of us like how he created us to be in the image of God. Unlike any other beings except the angels, he gives us the right to choose where we want to be. What do I do with this knowledge? What do I do? Now, if I know this, what do I do? See, I go back to those three questions. I realized I had the questions backwards. First thing I should start off with is, I should be thinking about the reality of hell. And then I should think about, wait a minute, I don't want anyone to go to hell especially those that, I, that are close to me. So what am I willing to do? What am I willing? How much am I willing to suffer that they may also one day desire to be in the kingdom of God? Because all it takes is for them is to believe and to accept and to embrace the message. And once I got handle on those two things, that determines for me what I should do with my life. This is why Paul ends it this way. Listen to what he says. You know, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And then he says, because our testimony, says, uh, they, will, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when it comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So you have these two utterly different dichotomies, life and death, heaven and hell. With God, without God. 
And what made the difference for these Thessalonians who received the letter was this. It wasn't random. It was because, and Paul just adds it and kind of throws it in there, our testimony to you was believed. A little afterthought almost. But this is central. What is Paul, here's what Paul is saying. That all the difference between heaven and hell, hell boils down to these three things. First of all, that Jesus, first of all, paid the ultimate price of our sin by dying on the cross. Doing something that none of us could do. Second, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, the authors of this letter, they pay the price of his propagation to them by and in spite of their suffering. They took the trouble to share the gospel with them. And the Thessalonians believed it in spite of the suffering that they also received. So he ends this letter with this beautiful prayer. He says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, you in him, according to the grace of our Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what I underline. Every resolve for good, every work of faith, He's challenging them and saying, look, expend all your energy that is worthy of your calling, that is for Christ's glory, in his grace and power. What could Paul be thinking about here? He leaves it up to us to answer for ourselves. And I leave it up to you too. I put a question mark, but I can't resist. I'm going to go back to the first story. First of all, I think about Paul. I think I showed this map before. Paul reached um, the Thessalonians in his second missionary journey. This is the map. He walked over 3,000 miles so that the message could get to there. And I read that in his lifetime, someone calculated, actually calculated that he walked over 10,000 miles through all kinds of dangers and suffering so that the message of the gospel can reach these different city-states along the coastal part of Greece and Turkey. That was Paul's every resolve for good and every work of faith. I created what I call a Thessalonian checklist. I made it this morning for those of you in business process. Think about everything that you resolve to do for yourself, for good, and every work of faith. I use this to say, I wrote down seven things. First, will this result in glory for the Lord Jesus in the end? That's the first thing. Would God be pleased to partner with me and supply his power? Is when I'm doing something so of God that he's going to be like, be my partner and give me his power. Is this worthy of God's calling me, calling me into his kingdom? Does this spring from my faith in Jesus or something that is just easy or natural for me? Does this require constant prayer for my church? Paul begins by saying, I pray. If it's not something that is that you need, you go back to your house church every week and say, you got to pray for me this. Because God, I want to, God has given me this resolve and I know I can't do this. Probably not worth your while in an eternal sense. Will this expose and impact someone with the word of God? And finally, will I hear a good and faithful servant from Jesus in the end for the endeavor and the work that I did? You know, I suggest this can be applied to anyone. If you're a student, as you're, my daughter is, thinking about college, I pray my daughter will look through this list. What is my motivation? 
What's, what's going to drive me to make this biggest decision of my life? Now, if you're in the dating seminar, I, I pray you would consider this list as you think about your dating options. Right? If you're in your career, I pray that you would look at your career in the light of this. When you make decisions about finances, when you're getting older like me and you think about retirement, I pray that I would think seriously through this and say, what is my decision about my retirement, my desires? How does this fit into this Thessalonian checklist? Because if it doesn't fit, the Bible invites us to expend all of our energy and enter into suffering for the glory of God, the coming of his kingdom, and our privilege of participation. I want to end just with these two quotes from Paul in his last two letters, First and Second Timothy. He says, I urge them, first of all, all petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It doesn't stop there. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. Yes, God wants everyone. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell and to become and come to a knowledge of the truth. For that to happen, is, there's two things. Again, first, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus did the hardest work already. But Paul knew that he had a part in it. He says, this has now been witnessed at the proper time. Paul and many others continue to witness this truth. And I love what he says at the end of his life in 2 Timothy. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I invite you to reflect on what Paul is saying here. Because the Lord will give you insight into all of this. And may I exhort you to remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is our gospel, for which Paul and many others suffered even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, may we endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There's a caveat here. The word of God is not changed, cannot be changed, has never been changed. No government or power or people could thwart the word of God. But there's one thing that can happen to the word of God. It can be buried in the quietness of our lives and confined away from us. May that never be so. May, we, may I see every one of us here, and more that I don't even see, marvel on the day that Jesus Christ comes back. And may we hear collectively, good and faithful servant. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your infinite grace and mercy upon me. And I think about all the different people who have come into my life that you've sent, who taught me your word, who exemplified your word, and who were so patient with me as I struggled to understand, struggled to grasp, and struggled to obey. Thank you, Lord, for your infinite patience towards me. I pray for everyone who's here today, Lord, that they'll look to you and to your word and be filled with love and gratitude. And may we be people who, who will consider it an honor 
that we bear the name of Christ and bear his message. In Jesus' name we pray.